This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 5th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. One of the most persistent myths about the plea bargain system is that only guilty people plead guilty. In fact, given the way prosecutors are able to stack charges against a defendant, a rational choice for an innocent person might well be pleading guilty at a vastly reduced charge. Cato's Clark Neely takes into account a couple of recent examples of what he calls coercive plea bargaining. One common claim that you hear from people who don't follow criminal justice, people who are not lawyers, people who do not work at the Cato Institute, and people who are generally unfamiliar with the criminal justice system is that uh, people who are not guilty of crimes do not plead guilty. Patently false, demonstrably false. Uh, Take one example. The uh, Innocence Project uh, is a nonprofit in New York that uses DNA evidence to exonerate people. Uh, It's not perfect, but it's pretty close to perfect. And if you are exonerated with DNA evidence, that means you almost certainly did not do the crime. They've exonerated more than 350 people since they started. And of those, 11% pled guilty to crimes they did not commit. That is a terrifying statistic and merely the tip of the iceberg. The the true true, uh, answer is, yes, people plead guilty to things they didn't do. And the only question is, how often does it happen? So let's talk about Lori Laughlin to begin. She is uh, somebody who was, I won't say caught up because she appeared to be an instigator in uh, the issues of essentially, I don't know what you'd call it, college fraud. That is trying to get your kids into into a school who by all rights uh, shouldn't have gotten in. Look, I have no idea if she's guilty of that crime or not. More importantly, neither does anybody else right now. Uh, there are all kinds of things that is that are permissible for parents to do to try to get their children uh, into a college. Um, sometimes just giving enough money to create a new building is that fraud? I don't know. Um, but the uh, so so that's why we have a process uh, for adjudicating. Uh, charges. Even if there's no dispute what she did, there might still be some dispute about whether it's a crime. Um, and so what prosecutors in, in many cases have is a very strong interest in not having to litigate all these uh, you know, nimby-pimby uh, legal issues. And it's a lot easier if you can just get the defendant to confess their guilt instead of having to prove it in open court. And you may remember Lori Laughlin and her husband uh, fought these charges uh, for many months. Uh, and it was only yesterday that she decided to plead guilty. She was looking at 20 years and they offered her two months. Who wouldn't say no to that? I mean, who wouldn't say yes to that? So uh, the the problem of coercive plea bargaining doesn't just affect uh, the rich, the famous, and uh, people with resources to fight. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the vast majority of defendants, both in the state and federal systems, end up pleading guilty. Um, hopefully most of them are guilty, but the answer is we actually really have no idea. Uh, but in the federal system, for example, 97.4% of all federal criminal convictions come from guilty pleas. That means people deciding to condemn themselves, to forego their right to a jury trial and simply confess their guilt. That is an extraordinarily suspicious number. And the only way you get that many defendants to waive their right to a trial is to coerce them into doing it. And prosecutors have become extraordinarily adept at coercing defendants into confessing their guilt, whether they are guilty or not. So uh, Michael Flynn, uh, he, you know, if you talk to me two years ago, or I'm sorry, four years ago, three years ago, uh, it looked like this guy was nailed dead to rights. 
Yeah, the thing is, though, if you ask people what exactly is it that he did, what is the crime that he committed? More often than not, they're stumped. They just know he's a bad guy uh, in their own minds. Well, guess what? That's not a crime. The only crime he was convicted of uh, was lying to FBI agents during an interview in his office when he was the incoming national security advisor in January of 2017. We don't know whether he lied to FBI agents in part because they still don't record interviews. The FBI does not audio record interviews. They prefer to take handwritten notes that they then type up into a memorandum of interview called a 302 form, um, which they oftentimes provide a very self-serving version of events. So we don't know what happened in that room. Uh, we don't know whether or not any uh, inaccuracies were, were a memory lapse, which is supposedly what the agents who interviewed him at first thought, or whether he was being deliberately deceitful. Um, but what the government was able to get Flynn to do, again, like Lori Laughlin, he, he, he asserted his innocence. He, he fought the charges. It wasn't until, and this has been reported, I think, credibly, it wasn't until they threatened to indict his son, who had a four-month-old child at home, that Flynn suddenly uh, got with the program and agreed to plead guilty to a single charge of lying to FBI agents, a, uh, a crime that he now uh, uh, disputes or denies that he committed and is uh, in the process of trying to withdraw his guilty plea, which DOJ just a couple of weeks ago filed a motion agreeing to dismiss the charges against him. And we're still in the middle of that because the district court judge has refused, at least so far, to grant the motion to dismiss the prosecution. Who is Habib Audu? Habib Aldu is a British-Nigerian dual citizen who lives in England and has been indicted in the Southern District of New York for various alleged financial crimes. He is resisting the DOJ's effort to extradite him from England to the United States. And one of his arguments is that the European Convention on Human Rights requires that in order to extradite somebody, there has to be a fair hearing in the receiving country, in this case, the United States. His argument that I have been brought in to support as an expert witness is that the right to a jury trial in the United States is now effectively illusory, meaning non-existent, because prosecutors have become so adept at coercing people into waiving their right to a trial and simply pleading guilty, and that if he's brought here to stand trial for these charges, he'll never get to trial because he'll be coerced into pleading guilty. And that's the substance of the expert report that I prepared on his behalf. George Will name-checked you in his uh, column uh, pretty recently. What what were the points that uh, that he pointed to? Yeah, so the George Will column uh, was all about coercive plea bargaining and how it has displaced the constitutionally prescribed mechanism for adjudicating criminal charges in America, which is, of course, a jury trial. And he basically told that story in the context of this uh, expert report that I prepared for Habib Audu, uh, in which I document in great detail how coercive our system has become. And in responding to this report, that I filed this 26-page report with an extraordinary amount of detail, um, the Department of Justice filed a very short letter brief that literally boils down to, well, coercive plea bargaining is not permissible in the U.S. system, and therefore it doesn't happen. Uh, and that is what George Will recounts in the column. And it's quite an extraordinary thing for the Department of Justice to be saying. That letter, by the way, was dated May 14th. So at the, on the same day that the United States Department of Justice is telling a British tribunal that we do not coerce people into pleading guilty in this country, the Attorney General of the United States was telling the American public, oh, sorry, we coerced the former National Security Advisor, retired three-star General Michael Flynn, into pleading guilty to a crime we now say he didn't commit. So they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. And I think it's uh, absolutely um, unconscionable uh, that the U.S. Department of Justice tells British courts one thing at the same time they're telling the American people a totally opposite thing. What is the fix here? 
uh, we have all these high, these high profile cases in which we become aware that people who may or may not be guilty, but certainly uh, the prosecutors don't seem to be able to prove a lot of these uh, charges ultimately, who fixes it? The best way to think about the role of coercive plea bargaining in American criminal justice is to think of it as a cancer, because it is. And when you talk about cancer, you don't think about, oh, hey, what's the fix for cancer? Mostly what you try to do is you try to beat it into remission uh, with various responses. And I think there are two really key responses we can have to coercive plea bargaining. The first is that I propose that Congress immediately create within the Department of Justice an office of plea integrity that would be charged with kind of kicking the tires on and looking under the hood of any proposed plea agreement uh, before it can go through. So that's the first thing that we need to do. Second, um, we need to bring back what I call founding era informed juries. And these are essentially jurors who know not only what the consequences will be for the defendant if they convict, how long will this person go to prison? Will they be deprived of their civil rights? If they're a non-citizen, will they be uh, deported? Um, so first, what are the consequences for the defendant if they convict? And second, um, what is the role, the proper role of a jury in limiting government power and preventing injustice? And that goes by the term jury nullification. We prefer the term conscientious acquittal, but what it means is acquitting any defendant if the government has not made both the factual case for guilt and the moral case for the punishment they seek to inflict. If the government hasn't done both of those things, then you acquit. You know, I, I, a while back, I, I talked with your colleague, Jay Schweikert, about um, why we have juries at all. And if uh, a juror is not able to access his or her conscience, what's the point? Well, that's exactly right. And, and the founders wouldn't have had to have this explained to them. You certainly wouldn't have had them had to draw them a picture. This is one of the few things, by the way, that everybody agreed on back then. The Federalists, the Anti-Federalists, the guy running a farm in Western Massachusetts, they all agreed that the, one of the most important institutions in any civilized society is trial by jury. And jury trials are now practically extinct on American soil. Why? Because of course of plea bargaining, the founders would not recognize and would almost certainly be horrified by our system where instead of having to get a unanimous group of community members to pass judgment and say, yep, this person is guilty, almost without exception, the government simply has to point at the defendant, exert however much pressure it takes to elicit a guilty plea and throw them in a cage. That's how most criminal prosecutions go down in America today, and the founding generation would have been absolutely horrified by it. Clark Neely is Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.